You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we're going to focus on the fundamentals. So often it's easy to learn about interesting or obscure topics when in all actuality, it's the fundamentals that are the most important. In an effort to cover this topic appropriately, we're going to talk about the biggest mistakes investors need to avoid when investing. On today's show, we have Michael Batnick, who's the director of research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Michael has recently wrote the book, Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. Michael is a regular guest on CNBC and Bloomberg, and he's an extra smart investor that reads a ton. So without further delay, I'm really excited to share this interview with Michael Batnick. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. And uh, I am pumped to have Michael Batnick with us. So, Michael, you uh, wrote this book, Big Mistakes. Absolutely loved this thing. And the, the subtitle, so people know, is The Best Investors and Their Worst Mistakes. And this was, this was quite entertaining to read through uh, some of the uh, stories that you tell. And uh, I guess for me, what gave you the, the motivation or the incentive? Like, What gave you the idea to write the book? So there are thousands of books written on Buffett and some of the greatest trades ever. And when they do study billionaires, what they typically do is they try and explain to people how they were successful, some of the lessons that they've learned along the way so that in turn you can replicate their success. So what I wanted to do was invert that and to show people that the best investors of all time are human beings just like you and I. And it doesn't matter whether you're managing your own 401k or a taxable account or a billion dollar hedge fund. It's really hard. And it doesn't even matter if you're buying and holding or you're stock picking or whatever you're doing. It is supremely difficult, not just to beat the market, but even to keep up with it. Love that. So one of the stories in here that really kind of caught my attention, and I know this has been pretty public within the investing circles, but for maybe people that aren't intimately familiar with what's happening on Wall Street or big names, Bill Ackman is a guy that you highlighted in your book. And you, you tell this amazing story about him and herbal life. And I just want you to kind of share some of your thoughts, some of your research, and really kind of your end state. What's, what was the big mistake that Bill Ackman made on this one? So the mistake that Bill Ackman made is, is probably one of the most common mistakes that investors make and probably one of the easiest mistakes to avoid. And that is do not talk about your investments with friends, with family, because they become part of your identity and it makes it really difficult to change your mind. And if you are an active trader, then having the flexibility to change your mind is one of the most important characteristics uh, of successful investors or traders. And the more you speak about it publicly, now imagine he did multiple 300 page slideshows, presentations, and six months later he says, eh, I made a mistake. I mean, it's just, it's it, investing is hard enough as it is. I don't think you need to make it any more difficult. And talking publicly is a really easy way to make it exponentially harder. You know, Stan Drunkenmiller, whenever you hear an interview with him, he often will caveat 
something at the end when he says, well, yeah, I have this opinion about gold today, but I might change my opinion 10 minutes from now. So like, <laughs> I think that's probably yeah. a better way to approach it if you would be talking to friends or families. And it also, it goes to this consistency bias that you're talking about where, you know, if you do say something and you change your mind, you just don't feel too bad about it because you've already caveated it, I guess. Oh, and it, this goes beyond investing, but but certainly with with markets, people are loath to change their mind on an opinion that they had, right? Like it takes a very big person to say, "Hey, you know what? I was a little ignorant. I didn't have all the information, or I simply changed my mind." That's okay. I think that's like a really healthy thing, but it's hard for most people to do. How do you think? I, I guess for me, like, I, and you see this; it's so prevalent. How does a person overcome that? Like, what? What can they do to start getting in the habit, I guess, of being not scared to say those things? So I'm sorry. The question is, how do people change their mind? Well, no. How do, how do people develop the habit to be more Buffett-like in the way that they uh, approach their mistakes? Because I think that's what a lot of it is of being able to change your mind in a public setting. And I know your, your real point is just don't talk about your picks and like become an identity with you. But if people would have a conversation about it and they, and they do want to say or or caveat it with, you know, this is my opinion today, but I could be dead wrong. How does a person develop that, that sense of comfort to be able to discuss things and discuss their potential for being wrong? It's easy for Buffett to laugh about his mistakes, right? With $80 billion in the bank. I don't think anybody thinks he's a dummy for making a few poor investments, but for the rest of us, I think there's two easy things that we can do. We can say, Hey, I like this stock because of this reason, because of what they're doing here. And if that reason changes, then I would reevaluate. Or probably an even easier thing to do for the average investor is, hey, I like this stock at $80, but I don't want to get married to it. And if it goes below $70, then I will either sell half or exit entirely or reconsider. But I think that like, especially for individual stocks, so asset classes mean revert. Individual stocks do not. JP Morgan did a great study showing that 40%, I believe this is the number, 40% of all stocks have had a catastrophic decline, meaning 70% drawdown from which they do not recover. So if you know that four out of 10 stocks are going to get annihilated to at least give yourself an exit strategy. Very interesting. And a stat that I've never really seen before one of the things I really liked in your book, Michael, that was your story about Jesse Livermore, really an iconic figure on Wall Street. So for those of us who are not too familiar with him, uh, who was he in the first place and what can we learn from him and his mistakes? He is the first person to make, um, maybe not technical analysis, but but I, but I, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Studying the tape, following price, um, he is the first person to make that famous. And he is one of the earliest, most successful traders. And I guess the most successful, there's a big caveat there. But what he is known for primarily is he had he was so eloquent with words. He is probably the most quotable trader of all time. And so every time he would make a mistake, he would journal it down and he would come away with this amazingly profound observation and he you know just this beautiful uh, slew of words for why he was foolish and why he won't do it again and some of the things that he learned and the irony is that he couldn't even follow his own rules like he wrote the rule book you know don't fight price uh, don't fight the trends like all those sort of things he wrote the rule book and 
1929, during the Great Depression, or when the Great Crash came, he was sh- heavily short. He made, I think, $100 million in actual dollars, not inflation adjusted. And then he gave it all back over the over the next decade. And then when the Securities and Exchange Commission was enacted and there were some laws involved, he could not adapt. And he ended up taking his own life absolutely broke. He made and lost several fortunes along the way. And if you read his his words, and it's just, it's sort of, you know, there is an irony there that he is the most quoted trader of all time and he cannot follow his own quotes. I, I hate to backtrack on you a little bit, but going back to the, um, when we were talking about Bill Ackman, there was a part in that section that uh, was talking about Carl Icahn putting on a position. And you know, from what I've studied on Carl Icahn, he's like this master chess player, always looks at things from like this chess standpoint. And uh, with Bill Ackman basically being a seller at pretty much any cost, and you talk about this in the book, do you think that uh, Icahn's play was purely because he knew he had a guy, <laughs> he knew what the other guy was going to do? Uh, yes. I mean, I haven't read uh, Scott Wapner's book yet, uh, When the Wolves bite i think on on that on those two characters but i i don't i would i i doubt that carl icon even knows what herbalife does but i think that bill ackman was 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 so publicly on a crusade that he was going to give the profits to charity that he was going to go to the end of the world whatever it took and carl icon very shrewdly said are you kidding me okay let's do it <laughs> and so that is i mean obviously if you're if you're managing that's that type of money i don't i don't see the appeal to be so public i just don't get it yeah no i i knowing some of the stuff that i've read about carl icon that seems like totally his his play was just hey let's take advantage of this dummy what's he doing um yeah and and he and he wasn't the only one yeah no i think you're right i think that he wasn't the only one matter of fact i believe that i believe that dan loeb did the same thing and i think even george soros bought herbalife (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? 
What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So, uh, Michael, one of my favorite stories and perhaps the favorite story that you're telling here, uh, that's the story about long-term capital management. You know, we had Jim Ricketts on the show multiple times, and we also heard about his version of what happened with that company. He was the general counsel. Um, It's very interesting to hear your take and and really how it debunks everything that you really taught in academia. So um, so what can we learn from this dreadful experience in the late 90s? What happened with long-term capital management is they were just a hedge fund composed of the best and brightest, multiple Nobel laureates. They had more brain power than, than uh, the staff at MIT, I think was a line, something like that. I said that... Um, Avoiding talking about talking publicly about your investments is one of the most common mistakes. I would say that the lessons that we can learn from LTCM's failure, nobody thinks they are below average intelligence, right? People that have the money to invest in the first place, it's generally because they were successful in other walks of life. They're doctors, they're engineers, they're educated people, and they think, I'm smart, I can beat the market, and it is often the opposite. I mean, the irony of all of this is that if you just buy you know, a global equity index fund and and do literally nothing for the next 40 years, you're probably going to beat the smartest people out there. And one of the reasons why is because they are so smart and there's so many of them and their intelligence cancels off. Uh, it cancels out. It's like LeBron James playing LeBron James every single night. There's not a sustainable edge there. So these guys calculated the probability of everything Except the thing is that we need to remain humble because the, future, the, the past is just one example of, of what could have been. And we haven't seen all of the examples and, and potential outcomes in the market. Things are so random. So you can't, you can't treat the stock market like a physics experiment. There are too many variables to control for all of them. So in LTCM's case, the chart of their returns, it's up, 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 and then zero, straight to zero. Um, They got caught up in the Russian default in 98, and they, I think at one point, they, there was a crazy stat in the book, in Roger Lowenstein's book that I think I quoted, but they were making more money at one point than like McDonald's or something. Like they were just printing money, and then what happens is like 
economics 101, they attracted competition. The, the spreads of what they were doing compressed. They needed more and more leverage. And then when it blew up, they got carried out real fast. So the, the lesson for the average investor reading that story is if, if these Nobel laureates, people that wrote the Black-Scholes formula, if they got carried out, how could you not be humble? Yeah. Yeah. And, and their returns. I think the other thing that sucked in so much capital, and you talk about this in the book, is the amount of re- their returns when they first started were huge. I mean, 20, 30 percent annually. Not only were their returns huge, but their sharp ratio or their risk adjusted returns were off the charts because to their credit, they had found um, an inefficiency and they exploited the heck out of it. And other people said, you know, companies like Goldman Sachs said, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that's a good strategy. And then Morgan Stanley said, that's a good strategy. And then that's what happens. And then and then the opportunities compressed and they piled on leverage and then kablooey. Well, having said that, Michael, I'm curious to hear what you think about Dalio's Bridgewater Associates and how they might be attracting competitors into what they do in risk parities. So I don't think so because I don't know how big all weather is, but I, you know, I'm, I'm making this up. Let's call it $30 billion out of the 200-something that they manage. It's all in like stock futures and bond futures and super deep liquid stuff. So I'm not necessarily concerned that um, any replication of that sort of strategy is going to have, you know, uh, send uh, tremors through the market. Um, There was an experience like that, the quant quake in the summer of 2007, where all of these quants were doing the same thing. And that potential uh, for disruption in the short term, yeah, I mean, that certainly exists. I'm not, it's not something that keeps me up at night, but I wouldn't be surprised if we had another August 2015 type moment at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. So one of the figures that you talk about later in the book is a very interesting investor because it's it's a venture capital play. And we're, uh, you mentioned Chris Saka. I, I didn't see in your book that you talk anything about Chris when he first started off. I don't know if people know this, but when when Chris was at Georgetown, I think he was in the hole a million dollars or a couple million bucks or something before he went to Google, which is just fascinating. But um, I really liked how you laid out his four rules in the book. So talk to the people a little bit about Chris Saka. Tell his story. Talk about some of the uh, the companies that he's invested in at, at the stages that he invested. It's fascinating. This is really an awesome story you put in here. Yeah, so by all accounts, Chris Saka had the single most successful venture capital fund ever. Everything the guy touched was gold. And I think that his story is interesting because it's so applicable to us. Whenever you, you, let's say you bought Apple a few years ago, you kick yourself for not owning more of it. Or, I mean, there's always something to distract you, to, to veer you off the path that you're going down. And his, his, his story is a great example of that. So he... It's not that he didn't get the opportunity to invest in the following companies. He literally had the opportunity, got the pitch, and said, thanks, but no thanks for various reasons. Dropbox, Snapchat, and Airbnb, three of the biggest unicorns that exist. And unicorns um, are privately held companies that are valued at a billion dollars or more. So the point is, you're not going to bat a thousand. You're not going to be even close. There are going to always be things that you wish you invested in. Oh, and, and the problem with 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 this is that hindsight bias creeps in and it's really hard to counteract that. Um, It's really obvious now that Amazon was destined to be this giant company, but of course it wasn't, right? Like, of course it really wasn't. Otherwise, everybody would have bought it. So the lessons with Chris Saka is that 
even the most successful people will have regrets. And that is just part of the game. And one of the dangerous things about regret is that it paralyzes you. And it sort of develops this like scar tissue in your brain and any and you can't be objective going forward. So, man, it, you know, this just goes back to the whole thing. I just I think that people just underestimate how truly, truly hard investing really is. Yeah, because specifically talking about Chris Saka, you know, it's easy to talk about how he invested in Twitter. And I think he owned 20 percent of that at some point in time. So a huge, huge success. Uh, but really what you're getting at here, that is, that's really his big misses, right? Dropbox, Snapchat, you also said. Uh, talk to us more about those misses and, and really the key takeaways from that. Yeah, so Dropbox, Airbnb, and Snapchat. You know, like I said, three of the biggest, uh, most successful private companies. He didn't, it's not that he got the, op- he didn't have the opportunity. Each of these founders came to him. And for various reasons, Dropbox, he said, what are you kidding me? Google's going to crush this. Airbnb, he thought there would be murders in people's homes. He said, what sort of maniac would fund this sort of company? And then Snapchat, he said, you know, the guys that send pictures of (laughs) expletives. Um, And so he, you know, he's able to laugh it off because, you know, his success is so overwhelms the three misses. Yeah, I think self-awareness, just the fact that you're you're talking about it is step one into something that some people just never realize how paralyzing that can be by constantly going back and saying, oh, I missed this. And then they feel like they have to make it up, you know, as they get their next opportunity. So they double down or triple down because they feel like they have to make up for that missed opportunity. That's just exactly right. And I think that the best investors and a good example of this is Harry Markowitz, who basically uh, discovered modern finance. And so somebody asked him, so what do you do with your money? And, and his was the mean variance optimization framework for, for stocks and bonds and different asset classes. And he said, I split it uh, 50-50, 50% stocks, 50% bonds to minimize my regret. And if that's good enough for Harry Markowitz, that should, you know, something like that should be good enough for the rest of us. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day, you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, 
a higher rate than City, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Hmm, interesting point. So in your book, you talk about a lot of different failures, a lot of misses. Which failure was most profound for you? And perhaps, which one did you enjoy researching the most? I Probably Mark Twain. Man, that guy would be deadly with a Twitter account. <laughs> he, was, he was an absolute genius, and I don't use that lightly, with, with language. And he made a mistake that is absolutely common with, with many people, and that is that he got married to a really bad investment, and it was it was um, something called a typesetter, which I guess was like pre-typewriters. It was there was 180 pieces of equipment, and it was just totally complex. And and he just he kept putting good money after bad, and he was he doubled down and he doubled down and he doubled down until he was basically bankrupt, and he was forced to literally go around the world on a stand-up comedy tour to repay his debts and some of the some of the lines that came as a result of his failures in investing are just absolutely gold so uh, i just want to read a quote from your book and this is a mark twain quote that you put in here that i think is just stellar um here's the quote it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble it's what you know for sure that just ain't so 
And uh, wow, that is uh, some powerful stuff, especially for investors, because you see a lot of people out there that run around saying, well, I mean, Bill Ackman's the perfect example. I mean, 100% sure herbal life is a Ponzi scheme. You know what I mean? Like, and then look where that got him. I mean, you have to have an appreciation for how wrong you can be sometimes. And I, I just find that quote awesome. The funny thing about Twain is that it wasn't just this one. I mean, this was one of a laundry list of examples. He was enamored with entrepreneurs and inventors, and he, and not just that, with with stocks. And I mean, he he had a terrible fear of missing out when there was an opportunity to be made in money. And he ended up in the end, he ended up all right. But there are just some really fascinating stories about how awful, awful, awful of an investor he was. And think about the IQ on that guy. Again, it just goes to show that. Brains do not equal success. Yeah, and I think you talk about it a little bit. It's it's the process. When you see a person who has a process that has worked for them and they continue to replicate that process over and over again, they typically see some of the best results. And it, it re- reminds me of this story that uh, Monish Pabrai told us whenever he was talking with Charlie Munger. He was saying that he was asking Charlie, like, why didn't you guys consider this or why don't you do this different? And Charlie's response to him was really profound. And I I distinctly remember this. He said, you know, Manish, that's just not part of our process. That's just not our process. It's just not the way we do things. And so even though I think Charlie might have had an appreciation for how good the idea was, it wasn't outside of their comfort zone. It wasn't part of the thing that had worked for them for so many years. And so they just didn't even consider it, which I found quite fascinating. A lot of investors have gotten absolutely blown to smithereens that way. Michael Steinhardt in the book is an example of that. When he tried to do the macro thing in in foreign countries, he got blown up. So I think it's very important for skilled investors to stay in their lane, and for the rest of us, <laughs> maybe don't even don't even try to compete with these with these people. It's just it's just not uh, a winning proposition. Of all the failures that you studied, what can a newbie really take away from this. Say that you're in college or you just graduated and perhaps you do not have a big portfolio just yet, but you would really like to go into the field of stock investing. What can we learn from the very best investor? Which kind of story could you highlight to the novice investor here? Ooh, the future does not have to look like the past. I think that people rely way too much on history. And I think the best and I study a ton of history because I think it, I find it fascinating. But the most important lesson that I learned from history is that none of the outcomes was preordained. This was none of what happened was obvious to anyone at the time. So we could look back at charts, at whatever, but a lot of truth gets lost in a chart. So to go back and to read Benjamin Roth's uh, Diary of the Great Depression or John Brooks, uh, his book, The Go-Go Years, just gives you an appreciation of what was actually happening at the time. Don't rely too much on history to, to, to lead you forward. Well, I'm curious because you're a heavy reader. Um, I like on your Twitter account how you said you're a long distance reader. I, I, I love that, that uh, statement. That's pretty cool. So out of all the books that you've read, what book would you say has had one of the biggest impacts on your investing approach or just kind of has shaped you? Um, and, and if you want to throw out more than one, go ahead. Hmm. Oh, ooh, this is tricky. Um, I think that, well, I mean, I've had a long journey. And so it's, I think that a lot of these books, it's just sort of like compound interest. You know, it's not, it's not one book that did it. It's just over time. So as a, as a, just a quick example of that. So I started, I believe the first book 
that I read was The Intelligent Investor. And so I was so enamored with the whole Mr. Market thing. I remember reading it to my mother because I was so excited. Like, oh, it was like a light bulb. Like, oh my God, this is so incredible. And so I was, you know, I was enamored with, with valuations and fundamental analysis. And then I tried doing basic work and that didn't work. So then I read Reminiscences of, of a Stock Operator by Jesse Livermore. And it was another light bulb. I'm going to be the next Paul Tudor Jones. This is so easy. Just be patient and don't fight the trend and all those sort of things. So it was really just a, a long, long, long evolution. I would say that my my probably my favorite investment book is The Money Game by Adam Smith, which was written in 1968, I believe. And, and by the way, his name is George Goodman. Uh, it was the pseudonymous Adam Smith. And it was written in 1968, and that could have been written today. He was such a, such a wordsmith, and it was just so funny. And some of the observations that he made on the human nature of investing were just hilarious. So that, if I had to recommend just one, Maybe not to start with, but if you have, you know, if you're already a seasoned investor, I would say definitely recommend, definitely pick that one up. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. The name of the book is Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. Michael, if people want to learn more about you, give them a handoff so that they know where to go. Sure. So it's not that hard to find me. I have a blog, uh, michaelbatnick.com, and I do a podcast every week with my friend and partner, Ben Carlson called Animal Spirits, where we discuss you know a dozen topics that are going on. Not not so much the trading stuff, but just hey, what's what's happening in the market in the world, and and shoot the breeze. And that's where you can find me. Awesome! Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Michael. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so this is the point in the show where we play a question from the audience, and this question comes from Spencer. Hey, Preston Stig. My name is Spencer The Point. I'm 18 years old, and I'm from Ontario, Canada. I just want to let you guys know that I listen to your show every week and uh, you guys are really the ones who introduced me to investing. Uh, So thank you. Keep up the great work. Uh, My question this week is, do you think value investing and the principles taught by Ben Graham and made famous by Warren Buffett are still effective in today's society? Not in the sense of current market conditions, rather in the general sense. In the sense that the number of Graham and Doddsville type investors has grown so much Do you think that the increasing number of value investors has affected the overall efficiency of the market? I guess my question in essence is, is it still possible to find Buffett-type investments even in a down market? Thanks, and I hope to hear from you guys. So Spencer, my personal opinion is that, yeah, there's a ton of value investors out there, but I, I think there's still a lot of speculators out there. And I would say that the speculators are on par or at parity with the value investors and and maybe more than the value investors. Some the other type of investor that I think has has come into the fold, especially in this last credit cycle, are the ETF investors. So I think that if you were gonna look at how many people out there are investing just through straight ETFs and not really doing anything beyond that, I think the number would be staggering. And I wish I knew what it was, but My expectation is that would it be very, very high. And so considering that you have those other market participants, I think that, yeah, there's people out there that can still implement a value-based approach. You know, in the last, I don't know the exact stat. I know the Wall Street Journal came out with something showing how poorly value has performed in the last 10 years relative to other strategies. I think that that's another reason why uh, value investing might work really well moving forward into the next uh, cycle. So I'll definitely say that markets tend to become more efficient uh, as they mature. And I think even Buffett mentioned that in one of the Berkshire episodes that we released not too 
long ago, and that was whenever he was talking about investing in China. Efficient here means、uh, mispriced, and to its extent, it is mispriced. For instance, when Buffett started out his investing career,、uh, there was no cash flow statement, so he made his own cash flow statements for the companies he was looking at. So you know, he would cross the market, and he could invest into、uh, strong cash flows that no one really saw out there,、uh, which is for, for obvious reasons、uh, harder to do today. But I agree with Preston in the sense that there will always be value to gain. I mean, more than anything, you need to understand what you're investing in. That's also why inefficient does not mean that it's a good market. Buffett was asked about would he invest in China, and he said no, because I don't know anything about China.、Uh, he would still invest in the in the U.S., and that's not because China might or might not be cheap. It's because that was not his、uh, circle of competence. Another reason is that even among value investors, you know, they value stocks differently. So, what is an undervalued stock to me is not necessarily an undervalued stock to you. And and then there's this, let's call it systemic inefficiency, one way or the other. You know, you have you have your active management、uh, who can't invest for the long run, and they might say so. But as we also talked about a few times here on the show, they make two thirds of the money on、uh, on fees and not on performance. So more than anything, they would need to be good with marketing and continue to invest in stocks that do not look too ugly,、uh, which value stocks tend to do. And then you have the thing、uh, with with indexing. Preston briefly mentioned before. At least the way it looks like is that all the indexing will give you more volatility. Say it might give you a flash crash. I mean, there's still value to gain, but perhaps not as much as as in the past. But I guess I still think there's a lot of of value, if you will, to to gain. All right, so Spencer,、uh, thank you so much for asking such a great question, and thanks so much for listening to the show. As a token of our appreciation, we're going to give you a free subscription to our Intrinsic Value course. This is a paid course that Stig and I created inside of our TIP Academy, and、uh, we're going to give it to you completely for free for calling in and asking such a great question. If anybody else out there is listening to this and you want to ask a question and potentially get it played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Be a bee. Be a bee. Be a bee. Be a bee.